Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. And that's found on page 312 in the church Bible. It's a Memorial Day weekend. It's certainly an important time for us to remember the sacrifice of those who have defended our freedoms and the freedoms of other peoples, and also to be in prayer for those now living who have vowed to serve, protect, and defend. And I thought perhaps also an important time for us to think about the important biblical and practical theme of spiritual warfare, the unending hatred between the forces of Satan and all of the angels of the Spirit of God. And so we turn to a passage about those realities in 2 Kings chapter 6. I'll begin reading at verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, "'At such and such a place shall be my camp.'" But the man of God, that is Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, 
you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Now, I have chosen this passage this morning partly for our encouragement and for my own encouragement, because I I have to confess that sometimes I feel like God is not winning but losing. Do you ever feel that way? You see the news from Ireland where for long centuries the church has defended and articulated a biblical perspective on life, and particularly the life of the unborn, and yet this week there has been dancing in the streets for the right to, to rip infants from the womb. Does it seem like God is winning or losing? Or consider the extraordinary fact that this year, since the beginning of January, there has been on average one school shooting every week. Children killing children, mothers and fathers rushing to see whether their sons and daughters are among the living or the dead. Does that seem like winning to you or losing? Or I think of some of the conversations I have where people are talking about the brokenness in a family or in a church or in a ministry, and good people are doing everything they can to to help the situation and bring reconciliation, but it still seems to be broken, and it, it feels more like losing than it does like winning. Now, I believe that in one sense, God is always on the winning side. He is sovereign over all things. He is working out a plan through history, and we've been celebrating it in song this morning that culminates with the victory of His Son over sin and over death and over the devil. Nothing can thwart that victory. But sometimes it's hard to see. And sometimes it's good to get a little encouragement, and particularly to see behind what can be seen to that unseen world of spiritual struggle and see what is really going on and see what forces God really has at His disposal. I want to encourage you this morning that though the danger is real, God is stronger, and we will see that through prayer and through the victory we gain through love. Let me tell you again this story of Elisha at Dothan, where an entire army was delivered into the hands of God's prophet. It began with the king of Syria leading various raiding parties across the border into Israel. And he would develop his strategy. He wanted to set an ambush, and so he would decide a particular place that he would build his camp. But unfortunately for for the king and for his soldiers, the Israelites always seemed to be one step ahead of them. By the time they got where they were going, the enemies were already gone, and it was all because God's man Elisha was in charge of Israeli intelligence. He would send word to the king, don't go to that place because that's where the Syrians are going to be. 
And it happened a lot. We're, we're told at the end of verse 10 with a kind of biblical understatement that the king saved himself more than once or twice. It must have seemed to the Syrians like they were bugged by the Spirit of God. Elisha had this inside information. It's all because God knows exactly what's happening in the world. He sees and hears everything. And so it happened not once or twice, but many times, Elisha operating as Israel's best line of defense. If you were an Israelite living in those times, the whole thing must have seemed rather hilarious. But if you were the king of Syria, you would have had trouble seeing the humor in it. He, he knew there had to be a leak somewhere in his cabinet, and so he calls all of his people together. He's greatly troubled, we read in verse 11, and he wants to know. He goes person by person, which one of you is actually on the side of Israel? And there was one servant who had the courage to tell him it was none of them. It was actually Elisha, the famous prophet of God who apparently was privy even to the king's pillow talk. He, he knows what you say in your bedroom, the servant says. Well, as soon as the king knew who the culprit was, he decided that he would take action. He says in verse 13, go and see where he is. Notice these words carefully. We'll come back to them. Go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. I frankly am not sure what good the king thought this would do. His whole problem is that when he goes to a particular place, the Israelites are already gone. I don't know why he thinks Elisha will be any different. And I don't know why he thinks sending his troops would succeed this time when it had failed all the other times. And yet from a merely human perspective, Elisha was in danger. An entire army was coming against him. And here is a first lesson I want to mention for this morning, a first lesson about spiritual warfare, and that is recognize the danger. Recognize the danger. The enemies of God will stop at nothing to silence the Word of God which of course is really what this was all about. The, the only thing preventing this evil king from carrying out his wicked schemes was God's Word spoken by God's prophet. That's what he wanted to stop, the Word of God. And so he sent out this force to seize Elisha. He was informed reliably that Elisha was at Dothan, and so he sent an entire army there. We read in verse 14 of horses, chariots, a great army, coming by night surrounding the city. Something a little preposterous, I think, about sending so many soldiers to capture a single spy. But this is how the enemies of God operate. They, they sometimes think that a show of brute force is the only way to get something done. This, this scene reminds me a little bit. It's a sort of... Uh, it's a sort of a trailer for what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, great, a great army, soldiers with swords and clubs coming to seize the Son of God, though He was unarmed, and though, of course, all the armies in the world could not defeat the Son of God. Not even when they put Him to death, they couldn't do it. Well, when morning dawned, Dothan was under siege, a small city on a small hill in the middle of a vast plain, easy to surround. And when the servant of the man of God, I think of him as a kind of pastoral intern, uh, went outside to see what was going on, he did what I think probably any one of us would have done in that situation. He panicked. Alas, he said, what are we going to do? He recognized that he and Elisha were in real danger. As believers sometimes face in the world today, 
The enemies of God make plans for evil. They, they don't get their way. They become very angry, particularly if the people of God in some way are standing in their way. Can't help but think of Wheaton College alumnus Andrew Brunson imprisoned in Izmir in Turkey, now approaching two years in prison simply for proclaiming the Word of God. Or I think of the very concerning reports now coming out of China, where the Communist Party has even more centrally located its control over religion in China. They've done, done away with the old bureau, centralized it with the Communist Party. The leading churches in Beijing and other, or other cities are facing um, renewed forms of hostility that they have not seen in some time. And we see it in some ways in our own country, hostility to biblical teaching over the airwaves in the marketplace, maybe at your workplace or in the classroom. We certainly see it in higher education. The opposition even fiercer in those parts of the world where Christians may even be put to death. Think of what has happened to some in North Korea. And behind this outward opposition, what we see on the human-to-human level, there is a spiritual struggle. There are spiritual forces of evil that are arrayed against God's, God's work on earth. Satan, I suppose, knows he has already received his death blow on the cross of Christ, but he is still trying to rule the world. And, and so the Scripture says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. blood. It's against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. We are against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you recognize the danger? In his book, City of God, City of Satan, an echo of Augustine's great book, Robert Linthicum writes about the oppressive spiritual darkness he sensed when he visited the city of Calcutta, and he didn't understand the sense of oppression he felt until he learned about the very significant role of Kali, the the Hindu goddess to whom that city is dedicated. She is the goddess, Linthicum writes, of darkness, evil, and destruction in the, in the Hindu pantheon. This is the goddess to whom an entire city is dedicated. And once I understood this, I understood Calcutta, the ominous, dark oppression I had felt since entering the city, a malevolent power of Kali possessing, hovering over her city with the world's worst poverty, the indignity in which street people are forced to live, the way the the city's systems and structures disregard the poor. It all made sense now, Linthicum writes, this profoundly evil presence brooding over the city, holding it in her thrall. And maybe, particularly if you are a spiritually sensitive person, you have felt a similar sense of oppression from time to time in a country, in a city, in a workplace, in an industry, maybe even in a church. I'm not sure the Bible teaches that individual demons are assigned to every city and nation. Some have felt that that's true. I'm not sure if that's true, but I certainly believe that engaging in spiritual warfare means recognizing that spiritual forces are at work in the world. And when you think about the the selfishness and the greed of a sex-crazed, power-hungry society, you realize there's a spiritual reality there. And to see how real it is, you just need to look at the devastating effect that these impulses have on the family and the church, our nation, and the world. Now, honestly, if you do sense some of those dangers, it's easy to be dismayed. It's easy to say with this 
servant said, Alas, what shall we do? Donald Gray Barnhouse compared the anxious attitude of Elisha's servant to a rather pessimistic limerick he had read in a religious magazine. It went like this, God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present the other side's winning. Sometimes that's the way it seems. And yet Elisha, for one, was not dismayed and certainly was not afraid, not not because he was unaware of the danger. He presumably knew the danger was coming even before it arrived. He always did. And yet his message of reassurance to his servant and to us, to all the people of God, is, verse 16, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Maybe that's a message that you need to hear this morning. When you think of your own spiritual struggle or how you're laboring in prayer for the the soul of someone you love, you're anxious about the future, and yet the, the message, the repeated message of Scripture is do not be afraid. And here, Elisha is simply following the instructions that he knew from Scripture himself. What Moses had said about godly warfare, let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread, for the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. What a great verse, great passage for for timid believers. Now, what the prophet could see that gave him this courage is what lay beyond the vision of his servant, He could see an army large enough to defend his entire nation, a countless host of the army of the living God. And here's the second lesson about waging spiritual warfare, and that is to believe that God has an innumerable and invincible army. Do not be afraid, Elisha said, and then he gave a reason. Here's the reason, because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We've got them outnumbered. That's what Elisha was saying. Yes, it it looks like we're down about a thousand to one, but there is more here than meets the eye. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, the minions of Satan are always badly outnumbered. Satan may muster his troops, but they cannot overwhelm the army of God. It really is true. Those who are for us are greater than those who are against us. The Bible on occasion refers to this innumerable, invincible army. David, for example, tried to count this heavenly host. He found it impossible. He said, the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. It was, it was more than he could number. And David also recognized that these forces are marshaled in support and in defense of the people of God. We, we said it in our, in our Scripture reading this morning. We recited, to, recited it together. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. He delivers them. And the psalmist goes on to say, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. It is the biblical teaching of guardian angels. If you are a child of God, And you are protected by God's servants. What what Elisha saw at Dothan was not unusual. It was unusual to see it, but it wasn't unusual in itself. 
Because that's, that army of God is always there. God has countless hosts of angels at His discretion. English poet John Milton said that thousands at God's bidding speed. These myriads of angels gentle enough to care tenderly for all the children of God and yet fierce enough to defend against any foe. Oh, if only we could perceive what an army surrounds us, then we would not be afraid. We'd be able to follow the the biblical injunction not to be afraid, but to be fearless. Here's the way one author comments. He says, there is a realm of reality more factual, more actual, more substantial than anything we see, hear, touch, taste, or smell in this world. It exists all around us, not out there somewhere, but here, legions of angels for which earth's forces have no countermeasures. God and His squadrons of angels are everywhere around around us. Whether we see them or not, they are there. I wonder what cherubim and seraphim are with us this morning. Remember at our church in Philadelphia, after one very moving service of worship, particularly glorious music, one of my parishioners coming up to me and asking me if I had seen the angels in the rafters that she had seen. I said, no, no, I didn't see them, but I I don't doubt that they were there. They're always there. This is the, the teaching of Scripture that God has given His angels to protect and comfort, to deliver and to guard. But now, if that is true, if we are surrounded by this mighty host, why can't we see them? Why is it I think for most of us, so rare, maybe even unprecedented for us to see an angel singing in the balcony or flying down the highway. Well, maybe for this reason, that we have not yet fully joined the spiritual battle through prayer. And here is a third lesson for our spiritual warfare, and that is spiritual battle is joined through prayer. This is the gateway to the unseen world of spiritual reality. And maybe for some of us, if we knew more about prayer, we would know more about the victory of angels over demons. Elisha's servant certainly came to see this spiritual reality through intercession. He, he, he saw the Syrian army. He thought that was all there was to see. That's why he was so afraid, but he, he couldn't see the half of it. And so Elisha prayed that God would help him see. Really, the whole passage pivots in verse 17 when Elisha prays, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the prayer was answered. The Lord opened his eyes. He saw, and he saw that the mountain, that is, that mountain surrounded by the Syrians, that mountain itself was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What the servant saw was an army of angels dressed for battle, mighty and glorious. This was all seen in answer to prayer. It shows the power of prayer and spiritual warfare to help you see things as they actually are and also to mobilize the hosts of heaven in support of the people of God. The horses and chariots were there all along, but the servant's eyes needed to be opened by the Holy Spirit. Maybe this is a good prayer for you in verse 17. Oh, Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes to see your presence in my present distress. 
Open, open my eyes so that I can see your provision, so that I can see your power, so that I, I, can, I can see your protection. Oh, Lord, open my eyes to see what it is that you are doing in the world and in my own experience. One medical missionary wrote about the time that God opened his eyes to the realities of the unseen world of spiritual warfare, and particularly to the power of prayer. This is a newsletter I received maybe 20 years ago. The man had been serving in a small field hospital in Africa, and every two weeks he was on a regular routine of riding his bicycle to get supplies, camping overnight in the jungle, and then continuing on his way. He had been to the city. He had gone to the bank. He had retrieved the medicine that he needed, and Upon arriving in the city, he was approached by a young man whom he had treated several weeks earlier. The man said that he knew that the missionary carried money and drugs, as he saw them, and he said, my friends and I had followed you into the jungle. We knew that you would camp overnight. Our plan was to wait until you were asleep to kill you and take your money and your drugs. But as we were about to move in for the kill we saw armed guards all around you. Well, at this, the missionary laughed. He said he was certainly all alone in the jungle that night, but the young man pressed the point. He said, no, sir, I was not the only person to see these guards. My five friends also saw them, more than 20. It was because of these guards that we were afraid and left you alone. You see, like Elisha, that missionary was surrounded, though he could not even see it by an invincible army. But actually, that's only half the story, because the missionary went back home to his congregation in the United States, and a man approached him very urgently and wanted to know specifically what day it was that this man had traveled, what time of year it was. The man, the man said, you know, when, when, it's night, when it's night in Africa, it's daytime here, And there was a morning I was going out to play golf. I was loading my golf clubs into the car, and I I suddenly had an urge to pray, and specifically to pray for you. He said, in fact, the urge was so intense that I called several men from the church immediately. We gathered at the church to intercede on your behalf. You see, it was because of the prayers of God's people that the, the armies of God were mobilized for spiritual protection. Speaking a few weeks ago with College Church mem- member Mar Miller, and he told me a very similar story from the life of his family. His parents were missionaries in the Belgian Congo in the 1950s, and there was a particular night when the missionaries felt convicted that they needed to gather in one place for prayer. And they made a circle of prayer facing outwards, praying into the night before finally going to sleep. It was two years later when somebody in that community came to faith in Christ that he explained what had happened that night. The men of that community had sacrificed a goat and taken a blood oath that they would neither eat nor drink until all the missionaries were killed. They had planned to torch the grass hut where they were staying. All of them would have perished. But he said, we couldn't come close. We couldn't come close because there were all these men in white standing around guarding your house. We were so afraid we couldn't come close. These are the the spiritual realities of what for most of us, most of the time is an unseen world. But spiritual warfare is waged and won if only we have the eyes to see it through prayer. God sends His angels when we pray, and then apparent defeat turns into certain victory. 
Well, there's one more lesson we need to see in this passage. I think it's kind of a surprising one. There's this army, mighty army to defend him. Elisha can hardly lose, and he does win the battle. But the way that he wins it, and particularly the way that he celebrates the victory, is by responding to his enemies in love. Love your enemies. That, too, is part of spiritual warfare. Well, it's rather a humorous passage, I think, how it all happened. Remember, I I said er, earlier, notice this. The king of Syria says to his army, go and see. They get there, and they're blinded. The Syrians come against him. Elisha prays. How ironic. The people are struck with blindness. And then Elisha decides to have a little fun with with these soldiers. His tongue is firmly in his cheek when he says, when he volunteers to be their scout, verse 19. This this is not the way. This is not the city. You're not in the right place at all. Follow me. I'm going to bring you to the place where you can see the man that you are looking for. And so it was that Elisha led that Syrian army to Samaria, that is to say the capital city of Israel in those days. And as soon as this army is safely within the confines of Israeli territory, then Elisha says, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And they did see. They saw the man they were looking for, Elisha, right in front of them. But they also saw that they were surrounded by their enemies. Now, how would you respond to an opportunity like this? I mean, the enemies that have been coming after you and coming after the Word of God, you finally have them right where you want them. I think a lot of us would be just like the king of Israel. Shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? You, you sense his enthusiasm, his eagerness. But Elisha raises a quiet hand. You shall not strike them down points out to the king of Israel, probably even if he had seized these men in battle, he would not have done such a thing. But certainly, certainly he should not do it when they've been led safely into his own camp. No, Elisha tells him to set bread and water before them. And so he prepared for them a great feast. Is that how you expected this passage to end with a feast where the the Syrians and the Israelis were sitting down to share fellowship together and actually to make a covenant of peace with one another? This is how Elisha furthered the, the peace process between these two ancient enemies. They sit down to a meal. It's in keeping with the biblical imperative, not only the Old Testament, but also the new. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. You will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. It's also in keeping with the command of Christ. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's, that's the way God would do it. That's the way you should do it. In fact, this, this whole scene at the end of the passage is practically a picture of the gospel, of the saving good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior who alone could ever enable us to love our enemies or even to do any of the hard work of spiritual warfare through prayer. God is a great king. He, 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 he came into this world and found us to be his enemies. But the ultimate weapon is love, the love of Christ shown to us on the cross where Jesus died for our sins. The Scripture says when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. The enemy is turned into a friend through love. And then God invites us to sit down to dinner. The Lord's Supper is our covenant love feast in which we see that we are no longer God's enemies, but now actually have become His friends. 
And if that's the way God is, that's the way He wants His people to be. He doesn't want us to respond with brute force or angry words or judgmental attitudes, but He is calling us to love, to love the person from the other religion, with the other worldview, with a completely different ethical compass. That is the person to love in the name of Jesus. Yes, our spiritual enemies are strong, but not as strong as our God. We will see this when we pray and when we gain the victory through love. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise that we are not enemies but friends. We worship you and honor you that we are under your protection. Lord, help us not to be discouraged by all that is discouraging in and of itself in the world, including many things that are spiritually discouraging, but help us to exercise a deeper trust in you, a more loving heart to those who would be our enemies, and a more faithful perseverance in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.